It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Richard, I'm still kind of reeling over the events of the last couple of weeks. As I think we all are, the sight of a band of rioters storming into the halls of Congress and just how close they were to members of Congress who were who were shielded by law enforcement, that's something I never thought I'd see. Uh, and they seemed so, so hopped up, so dangerously deluded. I mean, you know, they've been listening to Trump's crazy claims that got more extreme by the day. They've seduced by all these crazy conspiracy theories. How do we fix that? That might be the toughest question we've faced in nearly six years of doing this podcast. Today's topic, free speech in an era of conflict, Nadine Strassen. The First Amendment is a constraint only on government's sensorial power. It imposes absolutely no restraints on private sector individuals or entities. To the contrary, private sector individuals and entities such as Facebook and Twitter are themselves protected by the First Amendment in making editorial decisions. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Ever since the start of this podcast, we've been talking about the dangerous influence of tech consolidation in social media platforms. And on January 6th, we saw just how toxic that influence can be. Millions of people bought into false claims by President Trump, which were spread and amplified on social media. Those people really were radicalized. Oh, absolutely. So it makes it such a dangerous moment and really, to me, a terrifying trend. But as with previous crises, there's also the risk that we could overreact and rush through new laws and regulations that could permanently undermine our freedoms. So we thought we'd discuss this with Nadine Strassen, who was head of the American Civil Liberties Union for nearly two decades. She's the author of books including Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship, and she's a professor emerita at New York Law School. Nadine joins us from Northwest Connecticut. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So you've been an advocate for free speech and even very unpopular speech your whole career. But what went through your mind when you saw those protesters heading up the Capitol steps? Even the staunchest defender of free speech, 
none of us has ever said that all speech is always absolutely protected. Rather, we have insisted that before government may restrict speech, it must have a compelling reason to do so, and there must be no non-speech restrictive alternative to prevent the danger at issue. So you've probably often heard the concept clear and present danger, right? Mm -hmm. It was first formulated by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was one of the early free speech proponents on the court. And basically, when the speech is directly causing or threatening a clear danger, an imminent danger, and nothing short of stopping the speaker can protect against that danger, then and only then may government punish speech. It's an appropriately demanding test, but it is satisfied in many circumstances. First of all, a lot of the people um, who were engaged in speech and protest were also engaged in illegal conduct. The fact that speech is accompanying illegal or violent conduct doesn't become a defense for punishing the conduct itself. Um, secondly, speech can be used in material support of and facilitation of illegal conduct. So if people engage in exchanging information and ideas as part of a plan to commit violence as a group, um, that speech is not immunized from being punished as part of the conspiracy to commit violence. When you say the speech is not immunized, you mm -hmm. mean that that form of speech could be outlawed? It could possibly be outlawed, but it can also be used as evidence of an illegal intent or as part of a pattern of speech and conduct to, for example, subvert the results of the election, to interfere with the election. So it becomes part of a larger pattern. You're not just singling out the speech itself, and you're certainly not singling it out because of disagreement with its message or its idea. What about former President Trump's words on January 6th? When government is punishing speech solely because of disagreement with or disapproval of the idea it conveys, that is a violation of the First Amendment. But when you get beyond the viewpoint and you're looking at the speech in its overall context, and in that context, the speech poses a clear and present danger of imminent harm, then it can be punished on that basis. So clearly we have different views about disinformation. What about hate speech? That's also hard to get agreement on. Um, a lot of people have rightly been discussing and debating whether Donald Trump's incendiary speech to the ralliers before they marched and engaged in violent and unlawful conduct, whether Trump could be punished for having incited or induced that illegal conduct. And here, uh, the Supreme Court back in 1969 in a landmark case called Brandenburg versus Ohio, the Supreme Court formulated an appropriately strict test before so-called inciting speech could be punished. The speaker has to intend to incite 
imminent violent or lawless conduct, which is also likely to happen imminently. Very demanding, and yet a number of commentators have opined, and I tend to agree, that there's enough in the public record uh, that we know about the, the situation where Trump made his incendiary comments. There's enough material there that it could warrant further investigation. Freedom of speech involves not only his right to speak, but the right of the rest of us who choose to hear his messages to hear them. And as someone who deeply abhors a lot of his messages, I think it's especially important for critics to hear those messages so that we can rebut them and refute them and argue against his policies and against his election. So that's why this issue that came up immediately after the riot uh, has has been so controversial. The idea that Twitter put Trump on a lifetime ban, Facebook and others said, OK, we're not going to communicate these things that he's saying. Then we get the issue of are they protecting us from what they think is incitement? And what about our right to to hear this stuff, even if it's wrong? And of course, then there's the whole question is, is it actually a violation of anyone's free speech, though, if a private company decides not to carry your conversations? This is a very a tangled knot here. The First Amendment is a constraint only on government's sensorial power. It imposes absolutely no restraints on private sector individuals or uh, entities. To the contrary, private sector individuals and entities such as Facebook and Twitter are themselves protected by the First Amendment in making editorial decisions. That said, freedom of speech transcends simply the protections that are granted by the First Amendment. If we are going to have really meaningful, robust exercises of freedom of speech in this country, we need to be free from the constricting power of private sector actors and entities, uh, ranging from Mark Zuckerberg, who has final say over whatever Facebook does, right? to other corp powerful social media, and for that matter, traditional media corporations, to social media mobs, cancel culture. All of these individuals and entities and groups are exercising their own free speech rights, but they're often doing it in ways that suppress the freedom of the rest of us, not only to express our own views, but to hear other people's views. And the fact that the Constitution is not a tool to protect robust free speech doesn't mean we give up. It means we have to look for other tools, or as a certain podcast would have it, how do we fix it? Not with the First Amendment, but, but with something else. So we have to look for legislative and other fixes for the problems that we've been discussing. You've raised a really interesting point whether large technology companies often acting together, it seems, perhaps, you know, collaborating, that they should act as regulators of speech and, and regulators of really behavior online. You really uh, hit the nail on the head there, Rich, with regulators of behavior. There has been so much evidence coming to light uh, about the 
unnoticed to us, let alone unconsented to by us, pervasive surveillance by these companies to create the most detailed profiles of who we are, what we believe, what our tastes are, what our values are, and using that to drive the information that they feed us. You know, the essence of individual freedom, including freedom of speech, freedom of thought, is the right to choose, the right of informed, mature, consenting individuals to decide what we will say, what we will not say, what we will listen to, what we will not listen to. Not only are we not being given those choices online because of the content moderation policies, we are being deprived of the ability to make those choices. We are being manipulated in ways that we're not even aware of, let alone agreeing to. And uh, there are very serious arguments that this is violating the most profound right, which is freedom of thought. On the one hand, we've got the algorithms, which tend to feed us more extreme material that keep engagement, sending us farther and farther out to the edges of mainstream uh, viewpoints and, and debate. On the other hand, the big tech companies over the last couple of years have increasingly used the word disinformation. And you see other people saying they don't just say something's wrong. They say uh, something, a, a piece of information or opinion they don't like is disinformation, which makes it sound less like a type of speech and more like an action. And once it's an action, it seems like perhaps it's easier to justify erasing that or suppressing that on a platform. All of the labels that are used, Jim, for controversial, unpopular speech are very stigmatizing. But the problem is that every single one of these concepts is inherently, irreducibly vague and subjective. And therefore, what one person considers to be disinformation, somebody else considers to be the gospel truth. You know, the last public opinion poll I saw said that 70% of Republicans in this country really believe that there was serious election fraud that robbed Trump of the election. And I believe that that is disinformation, but I certainly do not want to punish 70% of Republicans who believe that. First of all, one person's hated message and hateful message is somebody else's loving cherished message. Uh, this is, uh, we can give political examples where people think that uh, wearing MAGA cap or chalking Trump on the sidewalk is very positive because they think he's done positive things for the country. And at various campuses, just that word Trump has been attacked as hate speech, in some cases suppressed as hate speech. A lot of people think that the messages from Black Lives Matter are very positive and loving, right, in the spirit of Dr. King. And other people seriously argue that it's hate speech against police officers, against white people, uh, against other non-Black people. And the list could go on and on. In terms of extremist or terrorist speech, there's the old saying, 
one person's terrorist to somebody else's freedom fighter. So if you if you owned your own social media platform and there was ISIS recruiting videos on it, say, or something mm-hmm. like that, I mean, you wouldn't want to clean that up and say, no, this is my platform and and that's not the kind of thing we're going to allow here? That is part of the editorial discretion to say, I want to create a certain kind of community and the community that I want to create is not going to include those ISIS videos. That should be my free speech right as a platform owner. So how do we strike the proverbial delicate balance between not letting the platforms have so much discretionary power that they are exercising, in effect, more sensorial power than any government ever has, but on the other hand, not suppressing their own free speech and and editorial rights. And and here there are a lot of straws in the wind, a lot of analysis and examination and proposals that I think require serious consideration, but deep, deep analysis to be sure that we proceed very slowly and don't do something that's going to have unintended adverse consequences. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nadine Strassen, former head of the ACLU. Coming up on How Do We Fix It? More on big tech and whether the largest players should be treated differently as monopolies under antitrust law. First, a word, though, about The Democracy Group. It's a podcast network with 13 shows, including ours. They look at ways to reform American democracy, a timely topic right now. Find out more at democracygroup.org. And now back to Nadine Strassen, who discusses free speech and the role of Facebook, Google, and other tech giants. Should they play a more powerful role than the government? Right now, my strong inclination is that this is right, that we would draw a distinction between the dominant major companies that have so much market power and such large networks that people, by and large, don't really have much choice if they want to meaningfully engage in politics and business. There's just an enormous amount of pressure to operate on those platforms, uh, which to me is smacks of monopoly or quasi-monopoly, or some people use the public utility analogy that it's such essential infrastructure that they have to guarantee fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory access to everybody. 
then for you know for the rest for the smaller that don't have that kind of market power you know let a million flowers bloom let everybody create a social media platform with whatever content moderation standards they want and give the users just an infinite array of choices among them the phrase section 230 <laughs> is thrown around a lot nadine first tell us what section 230 is Rich, I'm so happy you asked that because for everybody who uses it, I think the vast majority don't know what it is. What it does is provide immunity with some exceptions for the platforms from liability for posts. Uh, the platforms are shielded from complaints that they are liable because they kicked off certain speakers. Uh, they're also shielded from liability by and large for failing to kick off certain speakers. Under the First Amendment itself, the platform already has a complete free speech right to kick off or keep off anybody it wants. And that's why I think going after Section 230 is really a fool's errand and is going to do a lot more harm and, and no good from the perspective of people who are trying to change the platform's policies, because you, repealing Section 230 isn't going to change anything. You'd have to repeal the First Amendment itself to make the platforms liable for those kinds of decisions. Okay, well, so uh, as as a lifelong member of the you know traditional media, as a longtime magazine editor, this is something that just bugs us so much. You know, um, Twitter and Facebook uh, come along, and they make a lot of their money from people linking to the work that you know the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, or other journalists do. When we do our work in in traditional publications. We have to have fact checkers. We have to make sure we're not libeling people. We have to, you know, not everything has to be right, but we want to be protected from defaming and libeling people. And but but a bunch of people on on um, can do that on these platforms. They can say horrible things about whoever they want and they might be personally vulnerable. But but Twitter and Facebook aren't going to get hauled into court the way the New York Times would. But there are two two very important distinctions here, Jim, and I'm so glad that you raised that because I often hear that argument that it's somehow discriminatory in favor of the platforms and against the, the legacy media. First of all, when legacy media are online, uh, or for that matter, when individuals, when anybody is online, all of us benefit from the same liability shield. So if New York Times or uh, whichever publications you work for at Post uh, uh, has an online edition and there are, and it allows uh, third-party comments from readers, you know, uh, it can do that in a completely unscreened fashion, which might well be desirable. People might be welcoming that opportunity for a free-for-all exchange and, and the traditional publishers on that platform online would have the same uh, legal liability shield. Same thing for individual users. Uh, but Black Lives Matter would not have taken off without social media. The Me Too movement would not have taken off without social media. I mean, a whole lot of social justice activism has been dependent on this non-gatekeeped uh, free-for-all. And I personally think that the positive 
um, outweighs the negative. And uh, yes, I defend the company's rights to engage in more aggressive screening if they choose, but I don't want them to be forced to do it because of the risk of liability uh, that they would face that if Section 230 were repealed or revived. And if I can say one other bad thing about repealing Section 230 is that it would further entrench the already extraordinary, unparalleled, frightening power of the big platforms, including Facebook and Twitter, because they can afford to uh, to use the the algorithms and and the mechanisms they're already established, but it's going to be another barrier to entry. To- well, let's let's get to let's get to that. Um, you, you're kind of um, singing my song here about the the dangers of legislative or regulatory action that sound good. They sound like they're solving an important problem, but they they often backfire. We know the Biden administration wants to do a lot about tech. They've been kind of vague, other than Section 230, of what they will do exactly. Yeah. And it's funny because they're also they're pretty tied up with these companies. There's a lot of back and forth between the Democratic Party leaders and, you know, and Google and Facebook and and the rest. What do you see them doing? What kinds of of changes do you think they'll be pushing for? Uh, Jim, if I can first pick up on a really important point that you made, which is. Um, there's such close interrelationship between a, a number of government officials, including top Democrats and the leadership of these major social media companies. Um, if social media companies adopt policies such as restricting certain speech and certain speakers because of pressure from the government, that may present an old fashioned First Amendment problem, right? Um, it's not really voluntary if they are doing it because they fear that if they don't, there's going to be government regulation. You know, government can't indirectly achieve censorship uh, through delegating its sensorial power to these companies. And I'm very, very troubled about that. In terms of what the Biden administration could do, I know that there are a lot of proposals to um, undertake and, and already some in the works antitrust and pro competition measures. I think that's very important. It could go a long way toward giving more freedom of choice to us end users if we had more options to choose among. What about that? The tech companies, the giant tech companies, are enormously powerful, and you could argue they are monopolies. Is that a way? to go forward, to consider breaking them up? I definitely think that this has to be studied very, very carefully. What scares you the most and what do you feel the most optimistic about right now? As an activist, I have to warn you, you can't be an activist without being an optimist. And I'm a congenital optimist because uh, I see every negative development as galvanizing and inspiring resistance and activism. And, and it's really true. I mean, from the horrible tragedy of George Floyd's murder, um, somehow that, you know, it was just one too many and it has kicked off campaigns, which actually go back a, f- a few years with the Black Lives Matter movement. What I fear the most is is ongoing polarization and 
um, inability of people to, and including politicians, to speak to each other with mutual respect. But all evidence indicates that the vast majority of people in this country um, do want to engage in dialogue, do not hate each other, um, want to be friends with people of different political parties and forge, have Congress forge compromised moderate solutions. But a lot of those people just don't speak up. And I hope they will now be angry and frightened enough to understand that they have a responsibility and an opportunity to do a great deal of good by, by raising their voices. Nadine Strassen. Thanks very much. This has been great. Well, thank you so much. I can't believe the time is over already. Nadine Strassen, and coming up next, Jim, a recommendation. Jim, you've been reading a book <laughs> that most of us read a long time ago. I know. I'm probably the last person in America, or certainly among listeners of this podcast, to... Um, to catch up with the Hamilton phenomenon. I was a big fan of the original version of the musical before it was a musical and it was a, a performance piece that Lin-Manuel Miranda did. My wife actually used it in the classroom with her middle schoolers in the Bronx when she was teaching there. But I had not read the famous Ron Chernow biography of, of Alexander Hamilton. So I'm deep into it right now. And I have to say, what a time to be reading this book, because, you know, we always talk on this podcast about improving democracy, making our democracy better. But Hamilton was both an advocate for democracy and very fearful of democracy that was too quick, too fluid, too responsive to passions and 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 mobs because he saw mobs in action in, in his life. He saw how some of the patriot mobs in, in New York going against the British were could really be out of control and violent and scary. Great recommendation and a wonderful book. Coming up next, our conversation with Jim and me. Jim, as we were preparing to do this podcast, you said something, and you've said this before to me, which is whenever we're in a moment when people say something needs to be done, then that's a time of danger. And right now, we are very much in a time where people are saying something needs to be done about Facebook and Twitter and Google and big tech. This is why the idea that just because something seems like it needs to be changed right now and everybody's running around trying to enact this change doesn't mean that the change is good. Uh, and I would ask people to remember the Patriot Act. You know, that was bipartisan. Everyone supported. There were only a few outliers on the right and the left, you know, libertarians like Rand Paul and and, and a few people on the left who thought, no, this is way too much government power. Well, guess what? They were right, but it instituted a big intrusion of government power over our lives and our privacy. Just to remind our listeners, the Patriot Act was passed after 9-11 during the War on Terror. Right. It's a, a classic example of that kind of overreaction. I think there's a, a big risk that 
especially with one party dominating the the White House and both uh, both houses of Congress, that they'll have the power to railroad through some sweeping changes that sound good. But when people say do something, do anything, to me, that's a, a real warning sign that the, the odds are good that we'll wind up doing the wrong thing. I want to make this personal, Jim. I've just been to a wedding. And for the first and only time in my life, I said, I'm proud to be the father of the bride. My, my <laughs> daughter got married. But in the run-up to this wedding, I've been able, thanks to social media, thanks to Facebook, thanks to uh, WhatsApp, thanks to Instagram, to exchange all kinds of photographs and, and, and good wishes with members of my far-flung family. And that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for these companies. And I'm glad Nadine mentioned this, that, that there's, there are positive aspects to social media and to what we can do uh, that, that has been brought about by, by these online companies. I'm going to push back a little bit. It's the Internet. It's not the companies well, per no, se. No, but it's also the fact that we're all on the same. No, Jim, we're on the same platforms. I, I don't have to go to 50 different platforms to talk to my sisters and my dear friends. They're almost all of them on Facebook and, and, or and Instagram. Yeah, and, and, that's or, the, and that's easy. That's the blessing and the curse of of the concept of network effects. You know, certain sure. platforms are only really useful if everybody um, – if everybody's on them, but that's what makes them so prone to turning into these big monopolies. It's a harder puzzle, as Nadine said. You know, I, I'm on the same page that some kind of antitrust it might be what's called for here. I'm less excited about the idea of treating them as utilities because utilities usually also mean that we we enforce an essential monopoly for a company or a small group of companies. We write that into law. So that, to me, is a somewhat perilous concept. One final thought before we go, and this was striking to me, that Nadine, who's very much an advocate for free speech and has been part of many attempts to reform the law, is an advocate in this case of slowing down what we do. And that just speaks to the enormity of how complex this problem is. So a great deal more to discuss on this in the future, Jim. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our show is produced by Miranda Schaefer, and we're a production of Davies Content. Check us out at daviescontent.com if you're interested in making a podcast or improving what you're already doing. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.